Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that human skin bacteria have cancer-fighting powers. Certain skin-dwelling microbes might actually be anti-cancer, we'll call them superheroes, that can stop uncontrolled cell growth. And this is a surprise discovery that might lead to probiotics for your skin that can maybe prevent skin cancer. And this bacterial compound stops DNA formation. And mice that were covered with Staphylococcus epidermis, which makes this compound, develop fewer tumors after exposure to UV radiation compared to those that had a different kind of bacteria. And these findings highlight the potential of the microbiome to influence human disease, according to the researchers who did this. This was published in sciencenews.org. This is becoming more and more interesting. We know that our cells are run by ancient bacteria called mitochondria. We know our guts are full of all sorts of different species. We know that the cells, well, the subcellular components that are ancient bacteria talk to the microbes in our gut. They probably talk to the microbes in your skin. And it's becoming more and more interesting as we develop the tools to do this. And what this means is covering yourself in antimicrobial stuff might just be a bad idea. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. As we're getting into the show, if you like Bulletproof products and you use Bulletproof coffee or smart mode or any of the other supplements, collagen, brain octane, if you would take a second to head on over to Amazon and leave a product review for me, I would be truly grateful. It helps other people know that there's a difference when you use brain octane. It's a real easy way to say, hey, thanks for making good stuff. And I pay a lot of attention to those. Thank you. And a quick shout out to my friends at greatest.com. They just did a very detailed quantitative analysis of people to see who's having the most influence online in health and fitness. And I was amazed and grateful to find that I was number 16 on the list this year. So thanks guys for doing the work of quantifying who's reaching a lot of people and making a difference. I appreciate it. Today's guest is a really interesting guy. 
He's a Seattle-based developmental molecular biologist who's looked at isolating and characterizing genes involved in human brain development and the genetics of psychiatric disorders. But that's probably not why you've heard about him. You might have read his New York Times bestseller called Brain Rules, where he talks about how brains really work and how to redesign our workplaces and schools to match. He came out then with Brain Rules for Baby, which tells parents like me and early childhood doctors and educators about brain science so you can have happy, smart, and moral kids. And his last book is Brain Rules for, Wage- for, <laughs> brain Rules for Aging Well, which talks- that's Freudian, David. <laughs> exactly, for waging well. And uh, uh, so we're talking to a guy who's just a, a phenomenal human being who also is mostly a private research consultant who's worked in biotech and pharmaceutical industries and mental health and not necessarily the normal academic background that you might expect from someone with this level of knowledge. And his name is none other than John Medina. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you for having me on. Now, I just have to ask you, you're weird. <laughs> How did you get to be a, a person who studies these fields? And you're in a broad field, your genetics, uh, cell biology, mental health, like, like what drives your curiosity and your kind of relentless pursuit of these fields for your entire career? Yeah. Well, I didn't start out being a developmental molecular biologist. I was a professional animator and a graphics artist before I was a scientist. Oh, because that's so obvious, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about information processing. I was yeah. uh, what was called a tweener in, the, in those days, back when you did cell animations. I'm sure some of your audience will remember back to the days of cell animation. A tweener is uh, you'd have the real artist who could do the keyframes, so one frame at at, 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 at time zero, and then another frame at time 19, so you're going to have a 20 frames per second. The tweener has to take the two objects, one at zero and one at 20, and fill in all the other activity that has to occur in order to make it happen. So I was a tweener for a while. And that that drove your curiosity in the space? You started out animation? What what yeah. caused the transition here? I, I, I talked to all these people who were doing big things and, and lo- looking at things in a new way, but yeah. most people have either weird brains or childhood trauma or like something pushed them in that direction because you you don't sound like a typical animator here. So what caused you to suddenly wake up one day and say, I care about the brain and the cell and mental health. Oh, totally. The, uh, um, uh, it, it shows you the power, David, of a good teacher because I had, I, I did my undergraduate work at the university of Washington and I had a teacher who came in and said, and I, that's where I was doing my animation and doing lots of things, but I was, I was always good at math and science. And I had to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I took this introductory microbiology class, and the professor had just helped clone the genes that make fireflies glow in the dark. You would know it as luciferase, the luciferase system. And he stuck it into a tobacco plant. And he brought the tobacco plant in class, David, and it now, the tobacco plant glows in the dark, just like a firefly does. And he said a magic sentence that changed my life. Here's the sentence. You know, it's just A's, G's, T's, and C's. The nucleotides uh, in one, uh, in a certain amount and in a certain order will give you a whale, but change the order and change the amount and you can get a mosquito. Change the order, change the amount again, and you can get a palm tree. You can mix and match them like paints on a palette, which is why I can take a beetle's gene, the luciferase gene from a firefly, stick it into a tobacco plant and have a reasonable shot of it working together if you hack it a little bit. And I was gobsmacked. I went up to him when, it was, when the class was over, because I said, 
art? Science? Can I um wash dishes in your laboratory? Can I can I lick your boots? Can I, you know, <laughs> I would love to know more about this. And he just got in his grant and you know and with with the products of this, he said, sure, I need a, a bottle washer. So I went into his laboratory and I have never left. That's the way to say it. From this day to that, it's all about animation. It has a lot to do with information processing, not just the, the script that you have to work with, but you actually have to draw it. So you're actually engaging the brain in a lot of different levels when you're animating. And I don't find that information processing much different between the two. And in fact, enough compatibility that, well, I ended up getting a PhD in developmental molecular biology and leave the animations for my lectures. That is an incredible story. It, is there something about the, the mental skill of envisioning the future 20 frames from now and, and taking those little pieces that forms the way you think about things? Does that just wire itself into your brain? Well, it's actually has a, it has a formal term. It's called mental time travel. Yep. That's actually the term for it. It it's usually is related to a cognitive gadget, which we probably should talk a little bit about, whether we're talking about kids or aging brains, and that is executive function. So for your folks in the audience who don't know what executive function is, the pithy sentence is, it's the brain's uh, natural ability to get things done. <laughs> That's what executive function is. How does it work? Well, it has, has two peers associated with it. And they don't seem related at first, but they're the same neural substrate. It's where the top of the forehead, with the prefrontal cortex, is going to be talking to the interior of the brain, the amygdaloid complex, what we often call the reptilian brain. The ability to set up a reciprocal electrical relationship between those two is the neurological substrate for the following behaviors. A, cognitive control. Executive function is built for cognitive control. What I mean by that is if you have a whole disparate set of variables and you see there might be a commonality, you can make a gist detail heuristic really quickly out of them and you begin to organize it better. Also, your ability to shift from one thing to another and then come back to it, that's all related to cognitive control. People who have ADD, ADHD, do not have much cognitive control in that area. It's often catastrophic for them to be interrupted from a task and then move to another one and then come back. They usually can't come back very well. So the first pillar of executive function is that. But the second pillar is related to it, although it doesn't seem that way. It's emotional regulation. It's, re it's uh, ended up, people who have poor executive function in this, in this category really are hard to be around, Dave. They're moody. Yep. They don't have a good affective control. They don't have a lot of things that you can work with. But most importantly, they don't have impulse control. And because they don't have impulse control, the not a great relationship with the deep interior structures of the brain, uh, they have anger management issues or they get addicted very quickly or they can't focus on something enough to get going. People with strong executive function are often really good at math. People with poor executive function are often really poor at math. Uh, a good example for the impulse control side, if you get a math problem and you don't understand it, if you have poor impulse control, you will throw it out because I don't understand this. I hate this stuff. I'm going to go away. But if you've got good impulse control, you'll say, I don't care if it's uncomfortable. By God, I'm drilling down on this till I get it. Because regardless of how I feel about it, there are certain goals that need to be met A, B, and C. And that's why uh, both uh, emotional regulation and cognitive control actually work hand in hand in a single gadget we call executive function. Mental time travel is a part of that. Tell me more about this mental time travel. It's the ability to plan and to, we call, it's also sometimes called virtual transposition. It's the ability to plan something in advance and understand the consequences of that planning before you do anything. 
That's why virtual, okay, so you're not, it's actually not happening yet. Transposition, you're transposing yourself into a given set of circumstances. Um, good mental time travel people are really good at plot prediction, which means they usually hate most Hollywood movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they know, they've seen this story before. They know how this journey ends. They've got great mental time travel. Teen, I just finished a book on the teenage brain. And a hallmark of the developed, undeveloped teenage brain is that they suck at mental time travel. They don't understand the consequences of their actions. They don't understand the future impact of present behavior. So they don't understand the long-term consequences of short-term interaction. Does that tie into the fact that your prefrontal cortex isn't really fully developed till you're about 24? Is it the prefrontal cortex that's causing this mental time travel or is this a different brain structure? Well, it's better to say it's not. Uh, the prefrontal cortex actually has a fair amount of mature structure in it, yeah. but its ability to communicate with the deeper parts of the brain, mm -hmm. that's where the immaturity is. So, And that takes a while. In fact, you can show this is the work of Jay Geed. Are you familiar with Jay's work at all? He's down at University of California, San Diego. What was his last name? Geed, G-I-E-D-D. -D. I have not seen his work. Yeah. He's also at NIMH. A, a, a ridiculously good imager and a powerful advocate for understanding the development of the teen brain. He's put a lot of the teen brain on the map. And here's what he was able to show. He was able to show that the deep interior structures of the brain, I'm going to use the word amygdaloid complex. What I really mean by that, if we just stay with the amygdala, um, for the, uh, your listeners who don't know about the interior brain structure, if they could envision a scorpion in the middle of the brain, okay? And if you can think of the scorpion and the two claws of the scorpion, okay, that's the amygdala. One, you've got two, one on each side. The legs that connect the claw to the uh, uh, body of the scorpion, those are the hippocampi, the hippocampus. And there's two of them, one on each side, and they connect the amygdala to the center structure, which has uh, lots of different names. Uh, the biggie is probably the fornix. The amygdala, those claws, it's a great metaphor for this because the amygdala is involved in things you feel passionate about or that could hurt you or that you love or that you hate. It's the center of your emotions and not just the ability to generate the emotion, but your ability to generate a memory of the emotion. Those memories, that's why it's so closely tied to the hippocampus, which is involved in memory formation. Well, that structure, David, develops first. That gets on, it gets online around 12 or 13, and it'll stay, once, you, once it's there, it'll stay there. Your prefrontal cortex, to get to the heart of your question, the ability to, uh, the, uh, of the forehead brain, the places where you are more mature and are more adult, to communicate to those structures is not fully mature till age 25. So you are passionate before you are wise for the developing brain. And Jay even thinks he knows the reason why. Um, have you ever, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go off on a monologue here, but you want to make a discussion, be, be, be careful. Go for it. No, tell me. You know, this to me is really interesting because he brings in history. Uh, and so I, as an animate, former animator, I just keep thinking, okay, how would I draw this? Uh, the Habsburg line, we're going to look at the Spanish Habsburg line, uh, particularly Charles II, the end point of an incestuous series, multi-generational having sex with, uh, with your relatives. But we could also look at, at more, something more recent, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. You know, they were first cousins. Mm -hmm. And that was a problem because they had sex. And they had sex and had lots of babies and had lots of deleterious mutations. In fact, the more consanguineous sex, which, as you know, that's what that's called, the, with blood, the more you are um, uh, having sexual relationships within, the, within your uh, people group, the more likely the mutations are to occur. 
So what Jay did, uh, Dave, is that he said, okay, let's stretch that back to the Serengeti. If we are in our hunter-gatherer stripes on the side of the Ngorogoro crater, walking around in groups of 40 or 50, probably, Robin Dunbar would say no more than 150 tops, mm -hmm. but say 40 to 50 is probably more like it. What's going to happen when you have babies and those babies grow up and they hit puberty? Because now they're randy. Now they want to have sex. <laughs> but if they have sex in that people group, in two generations, they'll be infertile. Mm. That's what happened to Charles II. His, his, mouth was, his tongue was too big for his mouth, so he was drooling all the time. He had huge mental health issues, probably schizophrenia. Uh, he was infertile, and he was, a, he was a train wreck. He was the last of the Habsburg line, by the way. It actually, his, his uh, um, deficit led to the wars of Spanish succession because wow. everybody was pissed off. So it's, gotta be, it's a big deal. And Jay knows it's a big deal. And he says, well, so what are the hunter-gatherers going to do, given they are close together? Well, he says this. If you did the following, if you made the teenager, when they're growing up, have a certain suite of behaviors such that they feel all the passion that you would normally feel and have that at 12 or 13, are completely pissed off at your mother and dad <laughs> and your family group in such fashion that there's no way in hell you're going to have sex with them, let alone even have a, you just the whole idea of being embarrassed. If you create a behavioral firewall, yet at the same time, stunt their mental time travel ability, and now to the point, so that they cannot understand the consequences of their own action very well, by God, they will leave the 40 or 50 group, and they will strike out on their own. And that's a hazardous thing to do in the Serengeti and the Ngorgo crater, given the weakness of, our, of the homo sapiens sapien body structure. Well, if you have problems with mental time travel, you're not going to give a rip. <laughs> okay. This makes so much sense. Yeah, you can't stand your uncle. You can't stand your dad. You want to have sex. You're gonna. You're okay. You can also show that risk uh, risk taking behavior also increases in the teenage brain. Jay thinks that's a direct result of the neurological developmental sequences, such that you leave, go find another people group, and have your sex and your babies there, and thus mix up the gene line and never have Charles II until you have an aristocracy. So okay. what I used to say in the book actually is that the next time your teenage daughter runs up the door and slams, uh, runs up the stairs and slams the door in your face, old parent, get down on your knees and thank her. That behavior saved the species. That completely makes sense. And so much of what we do now in cities of a billion people is driven based on these small caveman things. Even our, our sleeping patterns uh, yeah. are tied back to that, which is, which is irritating. Uh, can we hack that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I do neurofeedback with my kids to help them integrate their kid, their brains better. And they're in a Waldorf school. They play two hours outdoors every day. But man, my daughter's 11. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> you, you can see the little beginnings of a teenage brain in there. And my, I, I love my kids. They're fantastic. And, and you know, because we were all teenagers, too, uh, yeah. that, you know, like, why did I do all that stuff back then? And it, like you said, it's because you don't understand the consequences of your actions. You don't have wisdom. What, what do we do as a society to help our teenagers maybe suffer less? <laughs> well, we have, I have a 21 year old and an 18 year old. So I've just come on the, out of the, the Star Wars four ending where the X-Wing is leaving the Death Star as it explodes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there are several things that really helped us out. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer that personally. And then I'll answer it in the peer review also, if that makes sense. We'll do two. What really helped uh, my, my kids, Dave, is that I told them what was going to happen to them when they were age 11 and 12. It was prophylactic as a strategy. I said to them, 
Uh, in fact, I showed him some of Jay's, Jay Gede's stuff. I said, this is what your brain's going to look like. And these are the behaviors that we know you are likely to experience. One of the great warnings that I gave them, and I would urge anybody in, even, even you, Dave, for, uh, and people that have uh, close to teenagers, do you know what the average age of onset of any mental health disorder that exists in North America is? Do you know what it is? You probably do. It's probably around 13, if I remember right. Yeah, 14.1. Okay, yeah, close. I was close. Yeah, real close. Uh, 14 years of age. And that's true. The psychiatric world, you can divide the behaviors into what are called thought disorders, like uh, schizophrenia, probably borderline personality, and then the affective disorders like anxiety and depression, and even some mixes and matches like schizoaffective disorder, which is as aspects of both. It doesn't matter what how you want to categorize it. Age of onset for all of them is 14 years of age. We actually think that most mental health issues that we deal with are disruptions in the normal adolescent developmental program in the brain. It's because it's at an extremely vulnerable time. The hormones are beginning to surge and Darwinian priorities of projecting genes are beginning to happen. You have lots of things. So what I did, Dave, with my kids to the personal side, I told them this is what's coming. If you begin to feel, if you have suicidal ideation, I would, I would love to know that in advance. If you have, you begin to have feelings of anxiety, I would like to know. If you're just embarrassed by me, and you will be, because I'm a big presence, <laughs> I will embarrass you. That I guarantee. <laughs> but that, isn't that like our right as, as fathers and, and mothers to embarrass our kids for fun? I, I thought that was part of being a parent. Well, I just don't want them to feel guilty about it when they do feel that. There you go. Okay. Uh, that, that the feelings are normal so you can get rid of guilt and shame, which are destructive. Okay. Well, exactly. And the guilt actually makes a recursive loop out of it, most anxiety. So you feel guilty, so you get anxious. You get anxious, so you feel guilty, and you go mm -hmm. back. And so if you could snap that loop, or at least address it so that they have the tools. And this was the first time I showed my kids. Uh, uh, Jay's got these beautiful four Tesla fMRIs, so I was able to show them some really, uh, really fine-grained imaging. They started getting into it. <laughs> so we ha would have an ongoing conversation about what was going on as their little lives developed. So from a personal point of view, just forearming them with what's going to happen and that it's okay that it happens, that there's an evolutionary reason for it that is so powerful, it actually saved the species. You don't have to feel guilty when you slam the door. You just have to know why you do it. That is really powerful advice. I, I think a lot of people listening, and by the way, there are a bunch of teenagers who listen to Bulletproof Radio. I, I've talked to a bunch of them at, at airports and on the street. So if you're listening to this and now you know something about your brain you didn't do, and, and for parents, I think that is profound advice, but it's not really what they taught me in seventh grade. Is this, <laughs> has this entered the school system at all? No. Most in my it's one of the reasons why I wrote the Brain Rules series, Dave. Most of this stuff just sits. It's gorgeous work. It was well funded in its time. You publish it, and then it sits on a shelf and gathers dust. That, and are so and it gets filled. The uh, uh, why I have a, a passion about it is that it gets filled very easily with mythologies because people are really interested. So you know, you only use ten percent of your brain. Yeah, right. The default resting state's forty percent. There's no such thing as a left brain personality and a right brain personality. You need both hemispheres to make a freaking personality. <laughs> we don't even know what it is, frankly. <laughs> what is a personality? Well, I have no idea. We don't. We don't really know. But in the peer review, to say what also you can do with teenagers, and we we'll certainly get to the aging in a minute, but the, um, what you can also say with teenagers is this. The peer review shows that you can aid and abet executive function. And notice how I said that. I didn't say it. I said aid and abet it so that it, is, it can more comfortably develop if you're aerobically fit. If you are not aerobically fit, 
executive function scores go down. This is the work of Roy Baumeister and Jane Cagney and folks that have done what's called the self-control scale. And they've done a bunch of good, solid psychometric tests, have strong reliability scores, good internal and external validity. Uh, you can actually measure people's executive function and aerobically fit teenagers are, have much higher executive function scores than uh, aerobically unfit uh, teenagers. So, in fact, I advocate in the book, Attack of the Teenage Brain, that we should redesign schools. And this, at the center of the school should be a gym. And you have an aerobic workout all the time. Uh, in fact, gym, the, the, there would be a school uniform in this model. It would be gym clothes. <laughs> 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 because it because it so powerfully aids and abets executive function that it actually reduces the psychopathology rates, both anxiety and depressive disorders. It's especially good for affective disorders. It works somewhat for the thought disorders. That, that probably requires something of, of a more strenuous effort. But in terms of the things that in the United States right now, we are dealing with a crisis of suicide. CDC, as you may be familiar, just came out and showed since 1999, there's been a 30% increase in the uh, rates of suicide. Uh, the, uh, an executive function with impulse control, if you have strong impulse control, that just doesn't happen. You ought to be fit. All right. I, I think I just came up with the, the way to, to save all the teenagers. You tell them they can only charge their cell phone if they generate the electricity on a treadmill or a bike, right? Would, would, that, would that solve our problem right <laughs> Very good. But I'd put, a, I'd put a delimiter in that cell phone, so it took a lot longer. Than oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, there might be some resistors in that line. Sorry, guys. I didn't tell you about that until you so, were 21. Okay. <laughs> so for your teenage audiences, with apologies, the adults are now conspiring, not actually on your behalf, but not in your local best interest. <laughs> There's a second thing you can do. Though uh, uh, that is that we also did in our uh, uh, in our household, but but is also now anchored in the peer review, and that is something I had to. Hopefully, I'm a nice guy, but I'm a pretty grumpy scientist, as you said in your introduction. Most of my life has been spent as an analytical research consultant. I literally am hired to paratroop into a project and try and poke a hole in it. That's my job, or was my job. I'm sort of retired. I started two brain research institutes in my time where I did virtually the same thing. And I'm in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Washington Medical School. And there I do the same thing. Do you work with Gerald Pollack by any chance? Uh, oh, I know, Jerry. Yeah. So I, we, we just, uh, Bulletproof just funded uh, research in Gerald's lab on water biochemistry. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah uh, we, we wrote a, a sizable check there to help understand some of what's going on for mitochondrial work. Sure. And so I was guessing you must be colleagues because he's also bioengineering at the same school. Anyway. What? Well, you tell him I said hi. I, I helped him uh, in some of the layout of a book that he wrote a number of years ago. Oh, beautiful. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. The, uh, um, okay. The, but the reason why I'm saying all this about, the, in fact, it's called when I've, now that I've had re professional relationships with a number of organizations over the years, they call it the MGF, the Medina Grump Factor. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Because, because I work with psychiatric disorders, Dave, I have to be a, a pretty good behaviorist. But I have to be able to link that to a bunch of cells, so I have to do some fair imaging. But my home base are the molecules. I am a DNA jock. And so the ability to speak those three dialects of brain science, if you don't line those up in a row, you know, it's not like I could live in my standard deviations with a behavior and expect to isolate a little snippet of DNA. It's not going to happen. So the grump factor has to be fairly strong and, and, uh, 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 and available. And I'm going to use the word mindfulness. I'm going to immediately run to my grump factor. Okay. <laughs> because uh, meditation, and a, if you look through that literature, it's actually, some of it is excellent. Some of it is as sloppy, so sloppy that it looks like it was done with an undergraduate without any peer review. <laughs> Whoa. 
Yeah. Uh, um, and there's even books you get. You know, there's a book you can get called Mindfulness for Dogs. <laughs> I keep thinking, okay, what baseline can you, what psychometric test can you give a dog that would make sense to it? And there's another one, Mindfulness for Cats. So I tended to stay away from it, except that shame on me, shame on Dr. Medina. Because uh, uh, the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who actually put some of the behavioral work in the mindfulness on solid, reproducible footing, and people like David Cresswell at Carnegie Mellon. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dave's work or not. Uh, he's a terrific imager. He's a good, good uh, cognitive neuroscientist. Uh, put together a powerful story about how mindfulness, if done in the eight-week protocol, prescribed originally by John Kabat-Zinn and then refined over the years, and do randomized blinded trials with ends that are larger than five, <laughs> so that you're getting, you know, so that you can get some real results, show something very powerful. Solid, regular mindfulness training under those conditions boosts executive function and lowers depression rates in pediatric populations, in adolescent populations, and in adults. No kidding. So the second, if the first thing is become aerobically fit, the second thing in my new high school, if the gym is the center, I'm going to have some mindfulness rooms. We're going to have some places where you can go. It will actively be practiced. It's the first thing the kid is going to get because the transition from home to school is extraordinarily traumatic for most students. They've often had, a, especially with teenagers, they've often had a fight with their, with their parents and they don't have good mental time travel. So, of course, they didn't prepare for tomorrow's test <laughs> and didn't put the backpack together. So they come out of a fair, often fairly hostile environment, even though even if it's loving and have to go to a school where, guess what? They're going to confront a bunch of other immature people with no mental time travel who are risk averse and are probably emotionally not particularly competent towards them. We'll start that day, by God, with mindfulness in the David Cresswell, John Cabot configuration and have them be tested for it because that has been shown to both aid in, in an executive function, get them into the gym, and then they can do their pre-calculus. That would be a complete change of uh, of what happens in schools, uh, and that there's the long answer to that question: How do you reduce suffering in teenagers? Um, what about the role of uh, maybe not having raisin bran for breakfast? <laughs> you shouldn't have raisin bran under any circumstances. <laughs> I, I I absolutely agree with you there. I'll, I'll take the lawsuit. Okay. <laughs> Notice we didn't identify the the brand of of, of it there, uh, but that's just that's an example for a high carb sugary breakfast of of any flavor, uh, whether it's a you know a pop tart or a donut or you know a, a fruit smoothie even. Uh, where does food come into this for for kids and teenagers? Here the literature is really sloppy. I'll just be blunt. Not that I don't believe it. In fact, the only literature that I've seen, and it had to undergo a statistical review about a year ago, and it's the Mediterranean diet that I'm talking about. Okay. The, uh, but it had uh, it got root canal. Uh, uh, but when, when they come back and they, and they settle the statistics down, actually they still had a strong, they had a strong result. But I use that as an example because though I believe deeply in the importance of nutrition and fuel and whatnot, it has received so little funding. Mm -hmm. And the confounding variables are so strong, yet everybody's individual metabolic rate, their, their ability to make ghrelins and uh, orexins and leptins, those are all genetically controlled. The gut's got this big, gigantic set of nerves down there that's constantly squawking to various parts of the, uh, of the brain. We know almost nothing about it. 
On top of all that, you've got a bunch of microbiota and bacteria and viruses and even a few fungi that are sitting around throwing lots of different chemicals, having to respond to the system. And everybody's got a different microbiota because they actually eat different things and they didn't all choose their parents wisely. Tell me that I can do good science in that. And I'll say to you, no, we're just starting. Have you worked with one of your other colleagues in, in Seattle, Naveen Jain, who's running Viome? Uh-huh. Uh, you, you've chatted with him? No, not at all. I'm familiar with it. Oh, you're familiar with it. Okay. That, yeah. that is one of the things that gives me great hope for understanding what's going on in the gut. Because at least now we have a list of all the bacteria, viruses, fungi, and phages going on <laughs> in the gut. So maybe if you have the data, you could start understanding behaviors. But the links between those and, and the literally billions of potential paths between that and a behavior, I think it's going to require a bit more compute power than we have now. But we're going to get there in our lifetimes. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm absolutely convinced. But you, but you put your finger on the correct parts, I think. I love the approach of Biome and other uh, people that say, okay, first we need a population census, which is what they do. And so what types of bacteria, what types of normal flora are there, what types of macrophages? It's so powerful that the ability to look at how that interacts with neurons is a big old deal. Uh, bacteria and, and usually bacteria are walled off from the brain, which is where most people look at with the central nervous system, but it's not like they're not trying to get in. <laughs> and, and there's lots of tasty fats and stuff you can get at. But until we've got the, the population down and then start asking questions, we're going to overlay that now with somebody's individual genetic profile, because it's going to be different from one person to the next. How, how does this configuration, this cluster of, of, of normal flora interact with this genetic metabolic profile? How does that create X, Y, and Z? None of those tables have been done yet. They're in the process of being done. But until they're done, my best advice when I talk to people about this, Dave, is I just say, you know, I'm a fruits and vegetables kind of guy. You're just going to have to start doing that. And if you're going to have white meat uh, or you're going to have meat, make sure that it's chicken. And if you're going to have oil, make sure there's some olive in it. <laughs> Got it. So pre pretty simple on the nutritional side. Why chicken versus grass-fed beef or salmon? Yeah. Well, salmon, you might be able to make a, a strong argument, depending on, on the, a collection of heavy metals that it isn't. <laughs> uh, sockeye salmon for the low metals, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, stay away from tuna and you're going to be a happy man. <laughs> um, I don't have anything. I don't have to answer your question. I don't have much to say in the peer review yet. And until okay. I do, all I can do is give an opinion. Got it. Okay. So it, it isn't necessarily uh, research-based, but it's uh, uh, there, there's definitely pros and cons for both of those. And I, I've certainly written all my opinions and all the research <laughs> I can find down in, on, on the nutritional front. Uh, but I always, I always like to talk to brain doctors and you know, brain researchers about, what do you do? <laughs> what, what about cognitive enhancers? Uh, I mean, I, I was well-known for a while. I'm, I think the first big name to just publicly say, I took modafinil for eight years and it saved my meditation, saved my career, made me a better human being. Uh, but I don't need it anymore because my brain just works like that all the time. Uh, <laughs> so that's the extreme end. But there's a bunch of other cognitive enhancers like caffeine, nicotine, uh, smart drugs, uh, nu sure. nutrients. What's, what's your take on those? Well, it's such a broad question that I'm going to ask you to specify. All right. Um, <laughs> Is there a role for nootropics for either adults or even teenagers to make the brain work better, grow better, live longer? Uh, not necessarily. Okay. There's, there's some evidence to suggest there are certain enhancements that occur in the short term. We know very little about what happens 20 years later. That is very true. And given that, uh, the uh, particularly for teenagers, the amount of developmental sequencing that's going on in the highways between prefrontals and amygdala are so delicate and for the most part so unknown and the little we do know suggests you can really screw it up 
psychotropically if you're not careful. The, uh, the data are so limited that to say anything evidence-based would not only be irresponsible, it would be um, potentially hazardous. And since in my career, you know, I work with psychiatric disorders, my big thesis statement is do no harm. <laughs> well, I, I just, I got to say thank you uh, for, for pointing that out. I have been uh, religious about telling people, because, you know, teenagers, the, the long-term, even young adults, you know, in your early 20s, the, the long-term yep. consequences aren't there. Like, don't go out there and start taking modafinil and all these other smart drugs because you're 19, you want to do better in school. Your brain's not done cooking. Like, like <laughs> let it let it finish before you start doing some of this. And if you want to enhance your mitochondrial function, do that at every age, which is nootropic. If, if you have a mitochondrial, even slight decline, you don't think as well. You can do that. You can eat really well. You, you can aerobically be fit. You can meditate. But don't... Like, don't go hit the the smart drugs. It, it's not it's not for young adults. It's for brains that are done. Anyway, I got off my. But thank you for saying that in so many words because it's really important. And that also, I I believe anyway, goes even things like microdosing LSD or using ayahuasca and things like that. Those are not a a young person's thing because well, your brain is still doing what it's supposed to do without them. Well, I usually use as the metaphor asbestos. Yeah, because asbestos when you when you smell it. It is a trapdoor that will not spring for almost 25 years. But once it springs, you're dead. There's no cure for it. There's no getting away from the lung damage that will happen. It is very possible, because the brain is so much more complicated than lung structure, that these very powerful drugs, which were never built to be what the, in the concentrations we're giving them, certainly, and that's true with any, uh, any pharmaceutical that comes out of a natural plant, the, uh, it was built to be within the plant itself, and so you have to ingest fully. But even that ingest fully, you're actually ingesting an entire ecosystem into your brain. Yeah. Uh, we know so little about it that, uh, Dave, it's just – and there are some things we do know to do. Get off your butt and go for a run is a powerful <laughs> thing to say to your mitochondria. It just is. Yep. <laughs> that Focusing on that until the research is, is uh, 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 better developed. I have no dog in this race. I don't really care. If it works, you know, as a scientist, I've long since quit caring what I believe. I just would like to know what's out there. But if I don't know what's out there, because I only have one brain and most of them are not my nerves are not mitotically active anymore, <laughs> it's, it does not behoove me, given this how I have to make the, my living on my brain. And most of the millennials will too, Dave. They will actually have to, we're, since we've so moved into an information economy, you cannot afford to take a risk with it in a fashion that is irresponsible. Well, like I say, if it worked, terrific. I wouldn't mind doing that at all. I live in Seattle, you know, we're going coffee. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There, there might be some evidence for coffee. And uh, actually, this is pretty good evidence. I, I just uh, interviewed a, a researcher from Vanderbilt who wrote the first paper in 1988 about using nicotine, not tobacco, but just nicotine, even for Alzheimer's and things like that. Like, there's some evidence for those things, but don't do that if you're 18. Like, it's just. It's just not right. And when I was 18, I would have said, screw you, Dave. I'm going to go do it. But I'm just telling you, like you're talking, <laughs> you're talking to John Medina here who's studied this stuff even more than I have. It's, it's not a good idea. And you'll have more power when you're older if That's you right. listen to that advice. So, right. Right. all right. Yeah. Let, let's, let's move up from the, the childhood development and the, the teenage thing. Actually, I, I got one more childhood question for you. Uh, okay. And then we're going to move past teenage into the kind of young adult and then the aging brain, which is where I want to end up. Okay. What is the role of early childhood trauma in what's going on in the brain? Well, we're getting a master class in it in the United States currently. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yes. And, uh, Germany had it before with the Syrian refugees, uh, yeah. a certain population were pregnant. Um, 
This will be the great work of Megan Gunner. Are you familiar with Megan's work at all? Uh, she's uh, Surprisingly, no. I've done a lot of work on childhood trauma. That's a big part of the 40 Years of Zen thing I do. But okay. T-U-N-N-A-R if you want to start looking her up. Megan? Uh, okay. Megan, uh, M-E-G-H-A-N. And look particularly at her work she did with Simon Fraser. She's at the University of Minnesota. She's uh, okay. I know Simon Fraser's work. Okay. Uh, but Simon Fraser's work with this is this will be the, the uh, stuff I know you've heard of, and that is the Romanian orphans uh, work. But she's done actually much more than that. And if we can start to get now into epigenetic land for a little bit, which we and, can. And for find. our people listening, epigenetics is the science of how the environment around you changes your genetic expression, and it's one of the reasons biohacking works as a as a field. Okay. <laughs> exactly right. The seminal finding here's the. Uh, I, I can get emotional with this pretty quickly, so I'm gonna, I need to settle down for a second uh, because the data are so clear and the yeah. damage is so um, apparent. We know in with stress systems in the brain, you generally have one of two giant field offices to work with. One of them is called the HPA axis. I mean, H stands for hypothalamus, P stands for pituitary, uh, hypothalamic, uh, and the and the A stands for adrenals. <laughs> the uh, uh, and the seminal hormone for it is cortisol. There is another though uh, uh, stress response you can give, and some people start they lead when they get stressed. They lead with cortisol. Yeah, not everybody does though. Some lead with the other big huge arm, and that is the SAM sympathetic adrenal medullary, and its big hormone is epinephrine. Except if you're in the UK, in which case you'll call it adrenaline. Right, it's the it's still the same uh, uh, thing. Okay, if cortisol is supposed to be high in the morning. And low in the evening. That's kind of its job. Its job is to regulate that at high and low. But if you have a stressed womb, the seminal finding is that cortisol can leach into the placenta, go into the developing brain, probably the hypothalamus, although that's still uh, um, uh, th- that's where the the shadow still lies. And, and you said in the womb. This is prenatal trauma. That I want everyone to hear that. That's Stan Groff has been on the show talking about this as well. And but like like everyone listening, like like it matters. Like be nice to pregnant women. All right, keep going. It, it totally does. <laughs> or better to say, allow them the Goldilocks stress that they're supposed to have. Yeah, because you need a little bit of stress to to spike it so, yeah. so the womb can develop normally. But what they're not supposed to do is be stung with barrel bombs. Mm-hmm. Or if they're pregnant, watch their uh, eldest son be taken away from them for two years and never know if you're going to get him back. The kinds of stress, the catastrophic stress, uh, is beyond the Goldilocks effect. Now you're switched over into epigenetic land because with sufficient concentration of cortisol slipping right into the placenta, goes right into that baby's brain and rewires its stress responses such that when that baby is born, that baby is now under a permanent state of alert. And cortisol, which is supposed to be high in the morning and low in the evening, is high in the morning, it's high in the afternoon, it's high in the evening, it's high all the time. These kids are on a permanent state of uh, of high alert. I was born that way. I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck, had the birth-related trauma. And I, I dealt with all that stuff. It, it is it is fixable, but man, it, it is a lot of work. In the first 30 years of my life, I didn't know I was in that chronic alert state because it feels normal. So yeah, I, I love what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah. Well, Megan Gunner has done a lot of the behavioral work to get to get to some of her point with Simon Fraser and others, because there's behavioral consequences to that, that you can see the risk of, of pediatric anxiety and depressive disorders is sky high from a traumatized womb. And the ability to uh, uh, navigate your social environment and not feel stressed about it is pretty low. You're going to be stressed a lot of your life in such fashion that you can, when you get married, you can actually have a stressed marriage. 
and that stressed marriage is going to do the same damn thing and put the cortisol back into the placenta. So even though it's totally epigenetic, there isn't a Mendelian inheritance around. It's simply that the cortisol gets passed from one generation to the next. The kinds of babies we are creating in South Texas, even as we speak, the New York Times uses the word horrific, and I would call that a light adjective. I agree. And we, we saw this in World War II as well. And, and you can see it echo down through the generations. I, I've seen it in, in my family. I've seen it in some people in Europe. And we, we know that this is what happens, yet it still happens. And you, there's been some studies done in El Salvador. Remember during the Civil War, mm -hmm. there was a cohort. One of the interesting things about the, the German refugees now in, in Bavaria is that it's a perfect experimental paradigm because it actually has a start-stop date that you, that you can know. Uh, there, you had a Syria that was in a fairly stable social structure for a period of time. And then all of a sudden the barrel bombs started falling and then they had to leave. So the stress, the, the ins, inset of the stress can be known, inset of the stress can be known immediately. And if, if they survive, you have a trace record. Okay. They went to Turkey or they crossed the Mediterranean and they were in Italy. And then finally in, in Munich, you can know every bit of those things. So you can do a fairly, uh, a robust set of behavioral work simply because the, uh, um, the, environmental circumstances is so well known is there something to be done there are a lot of people listening who are like oh this describes my family this describes me this describes my kids yeah. what is there to be done about this um want to specify well uh, uh, just just a, a general thing so if someone's listening is going oh god like i screwed up my kids or you know, my parents screwed me up so yeah. that, that can turn on that guilt and shame wheel we just talked about but, sure. but are there things that you can do as an adult, either for yourself or for your kids, so it doesn't keep happening? Absolutely. There's a lot of hope here, mostly because of the one of the great powers of the brain uh, uh, is the ability for it to rewire itself and to adapt and to actually yeah. to a form of reinvention. So the, uh, I, in fact, I usually say the brain is hardwired not to be hardwired. If I were to give a metaphor, I would say it's not a classically trained cellist. It's Charlie Parker. <laughs> it can move it's still beautiful it's still extremely intelligent but man can it adapt and i guess that would be the way to say it and there's a couple of ways you can show the adaptation so shall we go down one of these roads yes let's talk about that now we're going to be talking now uh not so well we stay with teenagers but for young adults as well and then maybe in your 20s and you're starting to have kids there is a phenomenal statistic uh, a statistical congruence that occurred a number of years ago. And I've had the great fortune to have a ringside seat to at least one of them. This is the canonical work, totally behavioral work. She's a psychologist, Diana Baumrind, who did her work in the mid sixties on what a good parent looks like. And John Gottman, who essentially did the same kind of work in the late nineties. And they came up with the exact same findings. And I, I remain, my jaws is still, behavioral jaw is still uh, 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 dropping a little bit from what they came up with. Because there's such hope in what they came up with, to our point here. The, uh, Diana Baumrind and John were first able to show that all of parenting rises or falls on a single battlefield. And like I say, now Diana's done her work at Berkeley. John did his work up in Seattle. But uh, John's PhD is in applied mathematics, by the way. So it's he's not a psychologist. And, but he, So he approaches it in a quantitative fashion that grumpy bioengineers like me actually really admire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so if we can come to the same conclusion, all of parenting rises or falls on a single battlefield, Dave. And here it is. What you do when your kids' emotions run hot. 
when they're intense. Now, hot doesn't just mean negative, like fear and anger. It can also mean joyous or happy or completely uh, perplexed by something, but it's hot. Uh, but what you do when your kids' emotions run hot directly predicts how they turn out 20 years later. So, so pe pepper spray is the wrong approach. I, I think we're, <laughs> all right. Yeah, maybe solitary confinement. They <laughs> can slam all the doors they want. <laughs> okay, so what do people do? Diana asked this question. She said, well, you know, we it's odd to think that because we thought there'd be so much variance in these data that you couldn't get at anything. What does a good child look like in North America? That's a question you can ask. Uh, no one's going to agree because there's so many cultural variables. And there's so Turns out not to be the case. Most of us agree on what a good kid looks like, oddly enough. And there's simple things like, I don't want them to grow up to be a serial killer. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't want them to, I, I would love for them to be happy. In my household, I want them to stay curious. Those kinds of things. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of agreement on what a good kid looks like. Diana was able to show that beha parenting behaviors cluster statistically just like genes on a linear piece of chromosome, which is why I have a natural affinity. And be careful, because I also have a confirmation bias, so watch uh, out. Okay. Dr. Steve is going to get <laughs> sidetracked in his profession for a second, so we need to be careful. Uh, four clusters of behaviors that co-segregate in families. Only one of those behaviors give you the powerful kid that everybody wants. But it's, they're fairly easy things to do, which is why there's a lot of hope in it. And it's the ability to react to a particular behavior that, that, that does it. So, uh, shall we go down this track for a second? I yes, can tell you. I, okay. I think everyone listening will benefit from this. <laughs> All right. Let's do John's work because this is the most recent. Uh, Diana, by the way, calls the gold standard, the, the parent you want to be, authoritative parenting. That's what it's called. And because it's a mixture of really being hard-ass with your rules and at the same time being extraordinarily uh, uh, loving and available and open uh, and kind even uh, with what you see as a parent. So, okay, four, four statistical clusters. Here's what you should not do. We're going to start with the battlefield. The battlefield, remember, is the kid has an intense emotion. So in this case, let's pretend there's a daughter, Emily, who has a goldfish that's just died. Emily's three. And so this is an intense emotion. It's her first real experience with grief because she's known this goldfish forever. Now the goldfish is dead and she's coming to you crying. What do North American parents do? Well, they do one of four things. Here's thing number one. This John calls dismissing uh, parenting. You say to Emily, Emily, I see that your goldfish has died and I see you're crying. But this is no big deal, Emily. We're going to go to Petco tomorrow and get you another uh, goldfish. So you just run along and play. The reason why John and Diana would call that toxic is because Emily's got this big feeling of grief. She says, this is not supposed to be a big deal, but it is a big deal. What am I supposed to do with this? There's no tools to be done with it at all. And so she tries to anesthetize, which is why John calls it dismissing parenting. Mm -hmm. It's a good term. The second cluster, and these are, there's a behavioral cluster. It isn't just that behavior, but several that co-segregate, okay? So, like I said, it's, it's, these are evidence-based uh, um, uh, research uh, efforts. Number two, he calls it disapproving. It's a lot like dismissing. Emily comes to you and says, my goldfish has died. What am I going to do? And you, if you're a disapproving parent, that's the second cluster, you say to Emily, Emily, this is no big deal. You know, circle of life. Things die all the time and they're reborn. We'll go, this is not a big deal. We'll go to Petco and we'll get you another. Now stop your crying. Emily, be a man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
That's just like dismissing, only now you've taken a rock and thrown it at her because because it's a pejorative. There is a and, – and what Emily does is, well, this is not supposed to be a big deal. Then why do I have such a big feeling? And, oh, I'm not supposed to experience this big feeling. There must be something wrong yeah. with me. And the relationship that they have with big feelings becomes one of suspect and suspicion that somehow this big feeling was wrong in some form and you shouldn't have those. And there's only certain approved feelings in my family household. Uh, unbelievably toxic. Number three, though, is the worst. This is the one that's got the highest rate of psychopathologies and all the associated with it. It's called laissez-faire parenting. And the best example I can think of is one from a, a, a case study that, that uh, there was this woman who we gave her that Emily uh, story and said, well, what would you do? And she said something extraordinary, Dave. She, she looks up and she says, I hate it when pets die. I would go for a run. <laughs> Whoa, and just not even deal with your child. Wow. Emily's not in the picture. In fact, mom's out the door because she can't handle her own issues. That's called laissez-faire parenting style. And that's the most toxic because it's a controlled abdication of the parenting position. You're no longer having any any kind of input. You're, you're trying not to have any input. And so when there's something that's real big, uh, that's a big deal, you are teaching the kid. It's called passive transfer. You're teaching the kid to run away from the problems. Mm. That's what happens. Only one. John calls it emotion coaching. Diana calls it authoritative parenting. That cluster of behaviors produces the most psychiatrically healthy, the most stable, the most productive, the best executive function. Yep, we can bring all that back now that exists almost anywhere. But what's fascinating about emotion coaching or authoritative parenting is that it has very strict rules, but it is unbelievably kind, and it almost always leads with empathy before the rule is inserted. So what you would have to do, and often it, when there's a big feeling, not only is there empathy, there's also a teaching moment because you're starting to teach the kid how to deal with certain feelings. So in, the, in our example with Emily, what you would do with Emily, my goldfish died. If you're an authoritative parent, if you are a motion coaching parent, you would say, it's awful when things you love die. Come here. I want to give you a hug because you and I, Emily, are going to cry together. Mm. And Emily, I want to teach you something about grief. Grief is a lot like you standing on a beach and a tide's coming in and out. Because the tide's going to hit you and you're going to feel these awful feelings. But you know what's going to happen, Emily? They're going to go away for a little bit. The tide will recede. And for a while, you'll feel better. But you know what? If you really love something, it's going to be coming right back at you. And it's going to hit you again. Back and forth, this will go. And Emily, I want to make a deal with you. Every time that tide hits you, I want you to find me and I will hug you and we will cry together. That's what you do, David. That is powerful. It is also not an opinion. Based on data. It's I love that. I, I remember when my, my daughter, my daughter was, by the way, my son's throwing a paper airplane at me during the interview, which is awesome. <laughs> Alan, give it a throw. Oh, that's perfect. Bring him on. <laughs> uh, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll come down if he wants to. He's in the loft. Uh, so I remember my daughter was about five. She was really upset about something. And, and she this is your 11 year old now. She's 11 now. And, and she didn't know what the feeling was, but she, yeah. she felt something. And so I said, well, oh, yeah. this is awesome. You're, you're having an emotion and you know, we'll, we'll figure out what it is and what does it feel like? Where's it in your body? And, 
And I, when we got home, she likes to draw. So I said, draw a picture of it. And so all of a sudden it became this, oh, I'm just going to look at this. And it, it was the coolest thing. She drew this red ball with a black line on it. And, uh, but just the, the idea of, of just recognizing it, which isn't necessarily what I always learned. Uh-huh. And uh, just, just I, I would say, sure, all parents make lots of mistakes. But generally, that, that seems like really good advice. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the growth that you get as a parent is, is realizing, oh, I probably could handle that differently. The whole, the whole reason I'm going through all of this yeah. is that you only have to practice what I just said, the authoritative parenting, emotion coaching, parenting, 30% of the time in your interactions to get the benefit. The other 70%, you can go back to your old nasty habits and <laughs> do your old stuff. That is some serious hope for parents right there. Perfection not required. Exactly right. In fact, I would argue that perfection would be, the, would be your enemy. Yeah. Because if the idea is to strive to get some of these more sophisticated behaviors correct, it's going to it's going to ding you every time you feel guilty for not doing it, as opposed to feeling like there could be some hope. So we have to practice our own medicine here now. Uh, empathy is, is a fragile, delicate thing for people to do. And if you only have to do it 30 percent of the time, you know, even parents that really suck, Dave, can do that. <laughs> now, what, about, lots- what about the rules? You, you said this authoritative. Where do the rules come in here? Oh, man, that's actually a very important part of both Diana's work and uh, and John's work. That's why she calls it authoritative parenting. You set your rules in titanium. But they're rules that are a lot like rules that are uh, uh, like uh, the uh, banks on a river. The banks on the river is the rule of the river, if you think about it, right? It's the one that it makes it flow and you guide it and whatnot. But but rules, uh, and Diana's uh, hopelessly makes this metaphor, or maybe keep consistent, don't put rocks in the river. You make, make them on the sides. But the rules, those banks are inviolable. Uh, and I can give you a really good example where uh, um, my son, Joshua, and this is a Josh and Noah approved story. I had to go through all of these to make sure. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, uh, Josh is five and Noah is three, I think, at the time. And uh, uh, they have a great relationship, but sometimes they could become physically, they, were, they would get into pillow fights, and then sometimes the pillow fights would devolve. Right. Right. <laughs> So uh, 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 I heard this upstairs. They were downstairs having this pillow fight, and and it was it was getting pretty violent. So I came down there almost immediately, and I saw and Josh was getting out of control, and uh, so I, I I physically separated the two of them, and Josh bit my hand. Wow! And he got a major timeout because I told him this rule, and it's a rule that's in our household: you are allowed to be angry. Quite frankly, Dave, Josh deserved it. <laughs> No, he didn't deserve the. But uh, he he was not being nice to his kid uh, to his kid brother. You are allowed to be angry. You are mm-hmm. not allowed to express it violently. Yes, that's a rule in our household, and that has never varied. And that's what authoritative parenting is. Interestingly enough, you can add something that's also now called. This is a different research thread, but it ends up being quite congruent. Something that's called inductive parenting, whereby it's 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 your it's a parent's relationship to their own rules. And here's that relationship. The relationship is um, you have to explain yourself, explain your rules. For example, and, and you can show this was done by measuring compliance rates. If you if you just say don't touch the dog because the dog is there, uh, uh, what's the compliance rate on a kid? Well, sometimes it's 100 percent, but sometimes it's 30. Right, right. <laughs> if you want to double that, if you want to get it to 60 and have it a much more stable number. Just add a sentence after that. Don't touch the dog because the dog bites. And I don't want your hand to get to get hurt, to get injured. Yeah. 
When you begin to explain your rules, the compliance rates go up. And more importantly, it gives a round for negotiation because the other thing about authoritative parenting, Dave, is that even though the rules are set in titanium, they're regularly heated up and reformed. <laughs> the banks are regularly shifting because as the kid grows, they need the they require different rules. So if you have both a sense of, of being very strong, but keeping your eye out all the time that you may have to change it, it's much easier to do if you are routinely explaining the rationale for your rules. And when that rationale no longer applies, the rule can evaporate. Beautiful. Yeah. Now let's fast forward. We've talked about young adults. We've talked about teenagers. We've talked about kids. Correct. Babies, prenatal. What about those of us in the 40, 50, 60, 120 kind of thing? What do we do for our brains? Ah, uh, yes. Well, there's the whole Brain Rules for Aging Well uh, book. The, uh, um, there's probably, if the question is how to transit through the aging process well, we should probably define a few terms. And the first one is going to be longevity, and the other one is going to be life expectancy. Because in the research world, they're two very different. Yeah. Uh, right. So the amount of time you can spend on the planet where conditions ideal is the definition of longevity. That's what we think is longevity. Life expectancy, sometimes called lifespan, is the amount of time you can spend on the planet given that conditions are not ideal. <laughs> so that's going to be one is if you think about it for a second, it's going to be primarily a nature component. And the other one is going to be a nurture component. And the question is how stable are those and what can you do to transit through whatever longevity you have? We actually don't know the longevity number uh, uh, for humans now. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not sure how elastic it is. The, uh, we know I, that the I'll other, find out. I'm totally good with that. <laughs> well, <laughs> amen, bro. We don't know, and we'd like to. Already we've awarded a Nobel Prize for telomeres, but that's about as far as it's gone. So. Yeah. Although we'll get there. I have a feeling that there's a particularly for people my age and baby boomers, and you're probably a little younger than I am, but the uh, uh, um, <laughs> the strong sense that they're all on the study committees and they're saying, yeah, we're going to fund that. We're going to fund that. We're going to fund that. Oh, yeah. are really going to know. Right now, the upper limit is, uh, depending on the laboratory you're looking at, for longevity, for hominid longevity, is either 115 years or 120 years or X marks, mark X to infinity that we don't know. So uh, you can take your pick right now. My, my uh, number, I'm taking 120. I'm adding 50% because we have about 100 more years of technology to grow before <laughs> then. So I'm just betting on it. But literally, that's why my 180 plus number is uh, something that I think is kind of reasonable, but not with what we know today. Sure, because we don't know that. We yeah. don't know that. We don't know if you can live to 180. Yeah. We don't know why most why the upper limit, only one person we've ever that's been verified has lived to 122. Mm -hmm. So fig that's an N of one. And if we put on our statistical grumpy hats for a second, that's not science. We showed it's possible. <laughs> it's now all we do is teach it. <laughs> it is a case study with a flashlight. On yes. It. Yeah. And that's good. And that's good enough. That's how yeah. science actually is done. Look at a case study and then try to explain it. So fair enough. All righty. So the, the, the effort in the book was given us how we're not sure what the longevity is, but it could be, it could be a lot longer than the 78.8 years that it currently is for yeah. most people. By that, I mean their lifespan. That's embarrassingly crappy, by the way. We can do yeah. better. I just got to say that. Anyway, keep oh, <laughs> I think you probably can. And the book actually asks the question, what can you do to transit through the aging process better yeah. that would allow your lifespan and your longevity numbers to equal each other? Mm -hmm. And so there are probably five sets of things that you can do, and not all of them are particularly obvious. So yes. I, went, I went through the book to talk about. I start with uh, um, uh, the fact that if you have lots of friends – and you're constantly socializing in such fashion that you're continually being exposed to alternate points of view, 
In fact, you can show uh, this is the most remarkable statistic in the book, David, because you can get a 600 percent increase in episodic memory scores, which is an unheard of number. If uh, this is Denise Park's lab, if you do the following, you regularly engage in arguments with people who do not agree with you, but who remain your friend. Wow. There's two things that you can actually call it uh, uh, productive engagement versus passive engagement. Productive engagement is the <laughs> is the spice. <laughs> but if you're friends, the metaphor, a good metaphor would be um, in the Supreme Court of the United States, there was Antonin Scalia, who was a conservative judge who died. His bet noir, at least his opposite uh, uh, person on the liberal side, is uh, Ruth Ellen Ginsburg. Ginsburg, and would, they've never agreed on anything politically, yet they were the best of friends. They went to opera together. They liked each other. Their spouses liked each other. She gave a eulogy at his funeral saying how much he meant to her. They agreed on nothing. They had a tremendous productive engagement. But that ability to regularly exercise your point of view in the face of scalding disagreement, but with rich friendship, changes your episodic memory score. And that's a form of socialization. So that's what that's thing one of five. Okay. Two, read books. 3.5 uh, uh, hours of reading per week minimum. More if you can get it. If you do, you can get you are 17% less likely to die of, at a certain age, depending on what your what your actuarial tables are and how well you chose your parents. <laughs> Does it matter what you're reading? It appears to be the best is to read fiction by people who know their way around a paragraph. Uh, well-written stuff. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're, you're nothing wrong with Danielle Steele, but she pales in comparison to Hillary Mantel and both to William Faulkner, those kinds of things where you are actively engaging in people that can uh, really get you into another do, world. Do we, do we have data? I, I've talked to a lot of people who have switched to audiobooks. some of them because of macular degeneration, sometimes just because like they're doing other things is listening. Is it likely to be the same? It totally depends on what the words do to you. Okay. Let's introduce a term that we talked about, I think, probably 45 minutes ago now, <laughs> virtual transposition. Virtual transposition turns out to be magic fairy dust for the brain. And when you are reading a book, when I read William Faulkner, like I was just finished reading Light in August for like the third time, the uh, Light in August can put you into a world unlike any I have ever experienced in my life. I am virtually transposed into it. So when you start to read, you start to visualize the world that you're in and you start to see that. The more you can visualize that, the more you virtually transpose yourself, the better it is for the brain. That's the cognitive secret sauce. Okay. And if you can do that with auditory books, terrific. If you need to have dead trees in front of you, fine. What it's not That's not the point. The point Got is to, what you can't have, Dave, is the image. And I say this as a former professional animator. <laughs> yeah. You have to generate the image. You you have to do the work. You have to generate the image yourself. Even this format as a as a podcast. Uh, people are building pictures right now of what you look like and they can go to YouTube and, and they can look at it, but I stopped doing video on YouTube because most people well I'll do 5-minute teasers or I'll take out the very best bits, uh, but it takes a lot of work to do video and I think people get less from it. I love the fact that there are still radio dramas out there because it forces you to virtually transpose. I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why podcasts that have a narrative thread to them, like the one podcast that was, I forget the name of it, but you probably know it. It's the, it's, uh, was investigating a crime, and it turns oh, out the yeah. ambiguity about whether the guy did it or not. I'm sure that I, uh, the name will come to me in right. about five hours. <laughs> that one 
you when you read when you hear that you are virtually transposed into that entire relational thicket that they describe and it's just like reading a book that's the stuff that appears to keep your brain uh, buffered against the negative effects of Alzheimer's and probably uh, uh, it, it uh, tamps down enough of the cortisol levels because you're not, in, you're not into your own problems, you're into somebody else's, and that tends to lower people so that you're going to change cardiovascular insults. Uh, wow. It makes all, there's a lot of physiolo- so, physiology. So not, now you're inspiring me. To, I'm going to have to write a fiction book now just, uh, just to help people uh, age less. All right. Totally. And uses put it on your, my list. Well, uses your role model, Wolf Hall. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so that's the second thing. The third thing you can do, which I think is interesting in its own right, is uh, 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 exposure to music. Particular, and this once again is in the peer-reviewed work. These, uh, one, as with all the books that I write, the Grum Factor flares and is available. And there's a lot of mythology about music. For example, the the relationship between music and mathematic uh, mathematical competency is is is, is tenuous at best. Uh, we don't really know, but we do know what music does to both your longevity and, most importantly, your executive function. No kidding. Let's go right back to this. When you get older, your executive function tends to die off. You know, you start to things are breaking down and it's painful and you can't ignore those anymore. And so your impulse control is starting to descent to start to centralize to your own problems. And that's a, maybe a normal part of aging. But if you if you play a musical instrument and this was done by people who had no knowledge of playing the piano and had no knowledge of music theory. And for four months, they hit the Carnegie Mellon or the Carnegie Hall or the t- take your pick of the music that they had to learn. They were in a class and they were learning piano. Their executive function just soared. Their impulse control improved. Their cognitive control, which is the heuristic of just to detail, as well as the ability to attend to a particular stimulus, all of those things improve. So the third thing I suggest is if you really, because executive function, impulse control, that's a measure of stress management, uh, which is going to directly affect your heart, which is going to directly affect how long you can live here. Yep. Learning to play an instrument you have never seen before is good for longevity, maybe better to say lifespan. So that's the third thing. Incredible. Okay. Fourth, we talked about it, so let's not belabor it, but it's an aerobic exercise. Strengthening is good too, but uh, it's amazing how little you have to do to, uh, to actually get a cognitive benefit in elderly populations. 30 minutes of moderate aerobic activity five times a, a week. Moderate being walking too fast to sing. So it's like, you know, in the Serengeti, we're walking 20 kilometers a day. So this makes all kind of sense. You want to get back to that. The fifth thing to me is the most interesting one, though. This is the most magical because it has a, 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 a it feels just like the movie Cocoon. Have you ever seen the movie Cocoon? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're not gonna we're not gonna work with uh, uh, Don Amici or Ron Howard. We're gonna work with Ellen Langer. Ellen Langer was the first woman to get tenure in the psych department at Harvard, and she's a legend. She's done a lot of really cool stuff. She created. Have you ever heard of the counterclockwise experiment before? Are you familiar no, with this at all? I'm not. Uh, ooh, let's get into it. Okay. The question you could ask is: She does uh, a couple of different things uh, um, uh, based upon. Uh, 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 what she's going to do is she's going to ask the question, is there any power in nostalgic re-exposure? Okay, so uh, it turns out, and there are three reasons she went after what's called the counterclockwise experiment, and I need to briefly review those before I can talk okay. about the clockwise. So this takes a couple minutes. All righty, first of all, when you, uh, uh, she has noticed for a long time that there's a retrieval bias in elderly populations. 
they tend to, if you ask the question, you do a gross domestic product over everything you remember, you remember best both the quantity of information and the temporal order in which they occurred best between everything that happened to you between the ages of 15 and 29. That's what you remember when your life is over or when your life is in the 70s, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and as you've, you've done more of your life than you're going to have left. Okay, so there's a retrieval bias. So you remember things much better. Number two, when you start reminiscing, particularly over the ages of 15 to 29, your social connectedness scores go up, which is interesting. It's, there's no way prior for this. Your eudaimonic well-being increases, so your risk of suicide is going to go down. You become less afraid of dying. And here's the most interesting thing. The more you expose yourself to your own nostalgia, the greater tolerance you have for outsiders. Hmm. <laughs> Particularly with people that have uh, uh, perceived social differences. And we think we even know the reason why. And here's the biggie. When you become nostalgic, your dopaminergic system comes right online. It's been declining for a while when you're aging. But, but the, the, what I call the highway to hell between the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area, those, those dopaminergic, it just comes online and all of a sudden dopamine is flooding through. And on the basis of that, she said, huh, what if I did this experiment? What if I recreated, I took a bunch of 70-year-olds and recreated the reminiscence bump. I'm going to have to rent out a monastery and I am going to turn it into 1959, <laughs> which wow. is the calculated bump. So they were not allowed. Uh, so the cohort that was coming, she does, a, it's going to be a pre-post experiment. So we're going to measure cognitive ability and uh, motor skills and a wide variety of things pre- and then they're going to take a bus to, uh, from Cambridge and go west to this monastery. It's not a monastery anymore. You can rent it out. But she prepped it to look like 1959. All the closed circuit television has President Eisenhower. It's going to be the United States version of 1959 on it. You're going to have Johnny Unitas of the Baltimore Colts. There's the Minneapolis Lakers, not the Los Angeles Lakers. Wow. You're going to have news feeds and 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 movies at night. When you when when those people got into uh, uh, the monastery, if they couldn't carry their suitcases up the stairs, tough. They had to open the suitcases and bring the shirts up one at a time to their room because they're no longer going to be seventy and eighty years old. For a solid week, she exposes them to 1959. They ate the same foods, had the same smells, blah 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 blah, and at the end found what I can only, it gives me goosebumps when I think about it. It was actually written about in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and it's called the Counterclockwise Experiment. Uh, what she showed is that hearing sensitivity began to improve. And by the time it was done, hearing sensitivity had dramatically improved. Memory scores and processing speed scores improved, particularly a very wickedly hard test called the digital symbol assay. I'm not sure if you've ever heard it. Mm -hmm. Or it measures both processing speed and memory. It's really tough, and it improved. Near point vision improved. Manual dexterity and whole body dexterity improved, and wow. their feet lengths got longer. And the reason why is that they're stretching them now because they're more motor active. And so those things are starting to – by the time it was done, there is actually a video, and this is what was written up in the New York Times, of they're waiting for the bus to go back to Cambridge. One guy had thrown away his crutch, and they had started to play a game of touch football where some of these people <laughs> were playing stimulatory. The power of dopamine, and it's the fifth thing to say about what you should do. You should go to your room and create nostalgia of whatever your reminiscence bump is calculated to be between the ages of 15 and 29, and you dose it like you took a pill. 
So you regularly get in that room and you listen to the music of between 15 and 29, eat those foods, read those books, uh, be continually ensconced in the whole idea so that you can have a dopaminergic spike that can occur and there's no alkaloid in sight. Wow. Uh, that is awesome. And that is something that in 500 plus episodes, no one has ever talked about. That is really cool. Well, I encourage all of your readers to look up Ellen Langer is her name, L-A-N-G-E-R, okay. counterclockwise experiment. And if you want to get just get a, a Cliff Notes version, go to the New York Times article on the counterclockwise All right. Experiment. I will link to that in the blog post mm -hmm. tied to this episode. For sure. Now, one final question for you, John. Sure. And you might have already answered some points of this, but I want you to prioritize the answers here. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, John, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, just throughout everything, three most important pieces of advice, what would you offer them? Just three. Okay. Number one, get curious. If your brain has gone to sleep, figure out what used to make you interested in life and you become reacquainted with it and you shake hands with it and you do it. You, some, there's a, there's something underneath that you have to do. A lot of people have been working in the grindstone all their lives. They've been doing a job they hate and they live for the weekends and all that stuff. There's a fair number of people to do that. Oh yeah. So their curiosity is, there's, is, is gone. No, you have to spend some time in what I like to call the glittering caves land, glittering caves where there might be jewels and you don't know what those are. And if, by God, if you've, if you've become arthritic intellectually, <laughs> first thing, number one is that you have to become curious. Number two, you have to start living for the benefit of others. Amen. You have to start getting into other people's perspectives. You have to start finding what their alleys are and doing your best to decenter yourself so that you are not constantly seeing your own needs and your own priorities and your own wants and desires, but you are looking at the needs and wants and desires of somebody else. This has strong empirical support in the work of Marty Seligman the yes. old hopelessness guy, where he's talking about perma and happiness and all the finding your happiness set points and all the rest of that. The second thing is that you are constantly getting, so that could be involved in getting into a charity or, you know, if you haven't gone out and picketed something, you know, for 40 years, it's time to paint a new sign and go out there. There's plenty of stuff to do. <laughs> so the second thing is that you need to get inside other people. Number third, at number three, I would imagine I'm just going to call lifestyle custodial hygiene. And that involves mostly getting enough exercise so that you can sleep well. Those two, the inability to, to get exercise, to be sedentary, and the inability, we didn't talk about sleep at all, I know there's no time for it, yeah. but it has an unbelievable effect on the quality of, of life for virtually everything else you do. So even though so that sounds pedestrian, uh, exercising and sleeping well is probably my third and final answer to your question. Beautiful. Uh, Dr. John Medina, what a fantastic interview. So much we covered, so much knowledge here. I think we're going to find people listening to this episode more than once and taking notes. Of course, they can always get the transcript online, but taking <laughs> notes has its own set of value for making sure. you learn things. It sure does, particularly if you write it longhand. Uh, it, oh, man, longhand. I don't want to do that. I can't read it, but I hear yeah. what you're saying. Sorry, millennials. <laughs> exactly. By the way, my kid's school requires that they learn how to write in longhand. They, they focus on it because of what it does to the cross-patterning in the brain and all that. And there's something to be said for that, too. 
Oh, you know what else it does? It forces you to repeat it. So you're setting up a recursive repeat loop uh, no kidding. because you have to write down the fine motor structure. So that's why you learn it better. And that's something you can empirically show. It's If you're typing, if you're tapping on something, you can't do that. But if you have to do this micro little turn, you have to repeat it constantly. And so the repetition schedule is more mm-hmm. robust than long form, which is why it has to be long, a longhand. That's yeah. what drives the learning. I, that actually makes a lot of sense. People can find your work in the Brain Rules books. Uh, the most recent one was Brain Rules for Aging Well, and you've got a, a couple other ones there. And uh, uh, just from hearing this interview, uh, anyone who's, who's thinking about, like, is there something I could do better? Uh, there probably is. And you've been <laughs> studying that stuff for a very long time with an animator's eye, which is fascinating and awesome. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, Dave, you were a delight to talk to, and I thank you for your time. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.